0: Welcome to Shop Talk Live, Fine Woodworking's Biweekly Podcast. I am here with woodworking superhero, please don't. Jeff Rose.
1: Yeah, there we go.
0: <laughs> Tim Rousseau. We're we're in Tim's Shop in Maine. Appleton, Maine.
1: That's it. Appleton, Maine.
0: And we just we're almost done. We're we're real close to being nearly done, done. just a little finish. We just had a great week recording, Tim make a uh, danish modern desk
1: yeah it's uh, inspired of my take on a danish modern desk yeah. in designer's notebook a few years ago um so yeah
0: yeah it's uh it's a beautiful beautiful desk and you've got some beautiful bird's eye maple that yeah i had have.
1: this board i've had around for a good long time and uh just squeaked it out for this you yeah know, i mean literally squeaked it out the you know i the lower rails on the desk, if you look, are have a little bit of knot in them that I yeah. would have normally not used, but it was like the last of the last. So don't tell anybody.
0: All right, we won't. Right, let thousands of people know. All right. Um. So speaking of Danish modern, it you would generally be known as your designs are more towards the modern realm.
1: Yeah, that would be. Correct.
0: Okay. <clears throat> what is a good way of What's a good way of somebody learning the subtleties of those designs? Cuz I see a lot of a lot of makers who are really into mid-century modern, a lot of Danish design, but they're not necessarily getting the little teeny tiny details.
1: Mm-hmm. The
0: way that someone like you yeah. Does is, is is there a book out there or some sort of
1: reference? Um, that's a good question. Um I th- I think like trying to learn any design uh is the best way. I think about learning design is just you got to look at what's happened before. You know, if you go mine history and it's you you're, you're going to see some stuff, you know, yeah. we And so um the longer I've been doing this. The more I've seen, and so the the initial wave of Danish modern stuff is kind of like the factory made simple stuff that's just and and it Danish a lot of it is f- designed to be factory made, and no mm-hmm. disrespect to it. It is you know, but there is this other level of um, work. You know, a good book is you know it's specific to chairs is the Danish chair. Um, and it has uh, kind of the classics, you know, Kerry, Clint, Only One Shearer, Wegener. And if you look at that book and you look at it, you start to see these levels of detail, of curves mm-hmm. they're putting places that are. And then if you start to mine around to some of those, you know, uh, bigger names um, and see other work on the internet, there's there's levels to it that are, you know, you think, oh wow. And it's simple. It's not like a like you know, carved unicorn on top that really jumps out at you. It's like Although that'd be cool. It would be cool. Yeah. Um I think the Norwegians do the carved unicorns. I could be wrong, okay. but um the uh <clears throat> it's you looking at it and you start it's it's one of those things, it's like, no, oh, do they really need to curve that? Oh, uh but it makes it really nice. And uh, you know uh, Years and years ago, I was in the shop in Hoboken, New Jersey with this guy, Tom Hucker, and I didn't know anything at the time, and Tom turns to me and says, hey, you know, I think Jerry Osgood might be the real last Danish modernist, and I'm like, I don't think I really know who Jerry Osgood is, I really don't think I know what a Danish modernist is, but I'm going to remember what you just said, and I'm going to... Think about that. And so Jerry Osgood, um, if you haven't seen Ben's slideshow on him, is like the the best woodworker you've never heard of. Yeah. You should definitely go watch it. And it's Jerry was a master of... Um, making incredibly complex work and doing curves places that were so difficult to pull off and it was so slight and you think jerry is it really worth it you know weeks to do that and for him you know he would say like a straight line's a missed opportunity yeah
0: that's a famous quote of his. and
1: so uh, uh you know um it's fun, and as you know, as, as you get better at your craft, you know. When I first started out; I'd be just so happy to taper a leg, right? Mm-hmm. And like I tapered it. Look at that. And then as the years go on, it's like, well, maybe it could be slightly curved. And then like, cool, I made a tapered curved leg. And then you think, well, maybe it could be curved across its section too, and curved in its length. And then you start going, oh yeah, I could do. And then you, you just keep adding to your toolkit. You know, if that makes any sense.
0: This this desk, it, it, especially as you were gluing it up. All of a sudden, it hit me. It was like, well, there's really no point in checking square. There's no place that you could no. check it against. No, because
1: everything is curved. No, you just put a glass of water on it, and see if it's like levelish to the floor. Like, and you, then shim one leg. And yeah, and shim shim a leg. or yeah. take the others down. So yeah, you're right. There's, it's point because normally with casework, you know, you check check and check is yeah. you know you put your your door your drawer in, but this is like this is what it is. So
0: so. Um, so the work of Jerry Osgood and that book but there's there's no like when I think about um shaker furniture there's the John Cassay book. Yeah. That's like you buy that book and you kind of get an overview right. of everything that that's out there but I I guess maybe since since Danish modern is still still going it's still a work in progress. Yeah. There's no overview.
1: Yeah, I'm sure there, I'm, there's there got to be some books out there. You know, the, the library at the school, there are some books in Danish of like student work in Denmark, which is so mind-blowing what they're doing. I can't read what they're doing, but you can just see the projects they're doing. There's some um, uh, weird guy, uh, Pater Moos, uh, was a, a Danish modern obscure dude that jerry osgood was very influenced by dan jackson was very influenced by um if you look uh anisa knows about him and uh, there's a obscure book of a show he did and so there's like this other level of you know uh you know tangent of weird danish stuff um,
0: it's it's funny too because i'm also thinking about jerry osgood and the people who who he taught somebody like Garrett Hack, who you would never think of doing Danish modern furniture. But when you, when you see their work together, there's obviously an influence in Garrett's work from, from Jerry's and uh, Hank Gilpin. And it's, it's, it's really interesting to think of the lineage. I always, I always think of Jerry Osgood as um, there's, there's you know coaching family trees in football, right, right, right. And Jerry Osgood is being one of the one of the, the, totally. the a, roots, yeah. But yeah. he's inspired by Hans Wegner and
1: and, all of and other. Yeah, yeah he's, he went to Denmark for a while. I'm not exactly sure when and where, but he was over there and affected. Yeah, that's um, awesome. Yeah, it's interesting, and it is those that group of people that came through the program in artistry at BU. The Hank Gilpins, Garrett Hacks, the Tom Huckers through Jerry Osgood and Dan Jackson earlier than Alphonse Mattia at the end was they had some incredible staying power. Like these people stayed in the field, Timothy Philbrick, uh, like mind-blowing, uh, James Schrieber, uh, those people that – so and it's kind of this question, is the chicken or the egg? Is like was it because Jerry was such an incredible – Guy and I would ask them this, like, and they're like, "No." It was just like we were just kind of drawn to this program, and it was this kind of magical time. And Jerry would walk around and say, rrr, 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 and they would go, "Like, yeah, that sounds good," and they'd just do it. You know, and there'd be nothing, you know, major that happened, but uh, but there was definitely something to the guy, and it, he has he's affected a lot of people. So, so wh-
0: what, one other person that I'd like to ask you about that you've obviously been affected by in the past week that, that we spent together, I've heard you mention the name Tom Hucker countless times, right? Right. Like, oh, Tom Hucker showed me this, or Tom Hucker gave me this tool, or whatever. Tell me tell me more about Tom.
1: So Tom, uh, he... was. A kid that grew up in Philadelphia someplace and was a um, sculptor art type kid and not sure how he really fit into the world and somehow got um, the opportunity to apprentice with a German cabinet maker and uh, at the age 17 um, made a sideboard that uh, got sold off into the world and um, about 5 or 6 years ago that sideboard got sold at Sotheby's for $44,000. Um so at age 17 he's doing stuff that are totally different level in his own deal and what Tom liked about woodworking is that sculpture is so all over the place you can do whatever you want but there's certain functional constraints by the um furniture making so he took off with that ended up going to the BU program in artistry and had benchmates like we just talked about um and then um ended up in Italy, working for a while, then ended up in Italy at the Domus Academy, which I don't really know that much about, but supposedly it's a pretty big deal, um, learning uh, the design aspect of um, stuff. And uh, then came back and has, you know, been working in New York City primarily since then. And he is one of these people who, this is what Tom does. Tom doesn't like play golf. He doesn't want to play the guitar. He doesn't, Tom is in the shop in the mornings all the time. Uh, never had kids, and he has work in the uh, Museum of Fine Arts, Boston, the Renwick Gallery, the Smithsonian, the Yale private collection, and it goes on and on. And um, some of his furniture is, you know, it's it's um, um, you know, it's it's not Shaker furniture. Like it is complex, modern, has deep r- roots to what he's trying to convey, and he's a very smart thinker. Um, so anyways, I when I was going back to New York City after learning furniture making at the school, got a contact sheet of different people and number two person on the list was this name, Tom Hucker, said most well regarded on the list. Um, I think I was going to get his secretary or somebody. And so I call him up and he says, yeah, hey, uh, yeah, we're in the shop. It's been here for like 28 years. Um, one of the guys just died. So there's a spot. And I'm like, all right. And so... Uh, um, just showed up and uh, talked to the guy who was renting this kind of cooperative space and moved in there. And so he and I spent a number of years together, uh, benchmates, and then had the large machine room. Um, And so I, again, I didn't know anything at the time about anything. Mm -hmm. And so here I am with this really nice guy making this incredibly complex, weird stuff. And, um, And, you know, him... Uh, he was always like getting work in galleries, whether at the time it was Perdomo and Eames on Long Island, or Wexler Gallery in F- Pennsylvania, or you know, he would just have these drawings. This is for dance furniture. This is for, and it's just crazy um, the level he was playing at. And so he's still around. He's still making furniture, and he's, uh, you know, he's what I like about Tom is he can he can make veneered spheres. He can carve ball and claw feet, pie crust table, he can fill stuff full of bondo, he can do concealed biter dovetails. You whatever you want to do, yeah. he can do it. And um uh it's 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 something. So.
0: Did working around him drive you further quicker than you thought?
1: Well working in that shop, this big cooperative shop in Hoboken, New Jersey, where it was basically there for about thirty years. At the time, we we're just making the hard stuff in New York City that nobody else wanted to make, and so stuck in the rafters of this. There was an old. Not I call it the Jell-O pudding factory, but it was not. It was a different pudding. Something like. Um, it
0: like was uh, a different pudding. a different. I yeah. don't know what
1: pudding there. Is. Um, so, just they could make anything. You know, they they weren't. Most of the people were not making their own designs, but they. You know, here's like a, a set of. 50 french provincial chairs with carvings and then here's a huge modern radial match dining table and here is a set of modern plywood desks for california here is you know each day it's different and mm-hmm. they could do anything in these The you would see them do stuff on these big machines you think oh that's how you do that you know yeah <laughs> so it was a good learning to go from small scale to everything's 10 feet yeah uh, It was a really... It was like a graduate program for me. Um, So it's hard to not feel like the new guy, you know, like you're in there trying to keep your head afloat. But um, they were good, learned a lot, so... Cool.
0: Right on. Well, um, I went digging through our uh, email account looking for questions last night. And I've got a few questions from readers that I think are right up your alley if, Mm -hmm. if you're ready. Uh, The first question is from Dave, and he said, I recently built uh, my niece a cherry nightstand for her 16th birthday. I finished it with a clear coat of shellac, sanding sealer, followed by water-based polyurethane. I like the finish, but after a few months, it has not held up well to the sun, and it looks a bit dried and faded. Other than moving it, do you have... that?" Other than moving it, do you have an indoor finish suggestion that you can recommend that will tolerate direct light? So, we were talking about this the other day. Uh, You've got water based polyurethane and cherry.
1: Yeah, which might not be the best. Um, I get, you know, cherry and walnut to me, whenever I see like a water based or a lacquer on it. it looks soulless. It looks like it's encased in plastic for all eternity, mm-hmm. like walnut and cherry just loved, in my opinion, just to get some oil in them to make them pop, but I'm totally aware, aware cherry goes blotchy, so like the sanding sealer coat. But even that, I feel like the, um, the sanding sealer sometimes limits the absorption of oil into it, and the cherry never quite pops the way it does when it hits with a straight oil. Mm-hmm. And so I guess it's a question, if you're trying to keep the cherry looking salmon-y pink... Uh, that's not um, really ever going to happen you know yeah. cherry's going to do what it wants to do, so um, that being s- the other thing I just say is that I really feel like the blotch like if you mill cherry sand it and you put the oil finish on it like it sh- and it shows blotchy, which is just like the undulation in the grain once the cherry darkens, the blotch just fades into the background, like it really huh. becomes subtle, um, other woods, not so much, but I feel like the cherry it, it mutes. As time goes on. So for me, my I would prefer to put like an oil varnish on the cherry, let it do its thing and try to build up a small film finish and varnish. And uh, lately I've been using this Southern Wells um, product, Murdoch's Hard Sealer, which is a tongue oil-based um, product with some resin in it, and it mm-hmm. looks great. Um, I put Watco on Cherry Forever. Uh, everyone's on the Osmo these days. Osmo Paul Inks, uh looks good on cherry. Doesn't quite make it come up as much. Um, but the dried out, you know, I, I say, say this too. I have some cherry uh, tables that I made that just keep, I keep oiling them like once a year or something. And they just keep looking dry. They just keep dry, dry, dry. And so... I don't know what I'm talking about at this point, but um, I, I know what he's talking about. If it's talking about just like dried out, uh, doesn't have a build on it. Yeah. Um, I don't know. You could you could sand it all off, you know, just cut it all back and try... Just throw some oil on try it. Try putting some oil on it. I mean, at this point, it's probably not going to really do the trick, but...
0: I always wonder if um, a lot of people... Pu- so we we get the question frequently, like, how do I keep... Cherry from darkening, or it's it's going to darken. It's gonna darken. All wood's going to change as it.
1: Yeah, and even with the UV inhibitor sprays you can put on it, they still will. They still go there. Yeah, yeah. I had um an interesting. I had a, a walnut sideboard that a guy John McAlevey made uh, that um, we got from him in 1967. It was here in the shop. So that was 50 years old. Uh, this is earlier this year. And then I had a shaker spinning wheel from 1800 someplace. That was being a neighbor had it, a large, like a five-foot diameter shaker spinning wheel. And the spokes were curly maple. And the hoop was a beautiful eighth-inch thin piece of ash. Right? Mm-hmm. And I had rolled this shaker spinning wheel up to this walnut sideboard. And they all looked the same color. This is the thing. So 50-year-old walnut, 50-year-old curly maple, and 50-year-old ash. It was this ubiquitous brown. It's It's just all going brown. You know, that's the deal. Clara walnut, not so much. It's going to stay its color, but it's, you know.
0: Just accept that it's going to change. The
1: dark ones lighten up. The light ones darken up, and they kind of meet in this middle land. And so it's it's... You know, I think that's part of what I think people don't realize is you're making things out of this white wood, but time is going to, it's going to turn it honey, yeah. you know. What's it look like in 50 years, 60 years? So it's an interesting question.
0: All right. But, <clears throat> all right, let's see. Uh, question number two.
1: Is it a finishing question? I, hope, I really no, like the no finishing question. Do, do you want me to? Uh... No, just maybe save it for the end so it's really nice.
0: Okay. All right um there's there's a lot of resawing questions that resawing
1: yeah. yeah uh
0: from Dave, I have a european style fourteen inch bandsaw with a half inch four t p i blade and I was resawing a ten inch square by two foot long piece of pine the result the resulting cut left me with a hollow in the resawn piece and a bulge in the slab about two thirds of the way through so the blade yeah, the blade
1: bulged. deflected yeah, yeah.
0: Uh, I flattened the, sl- the slab. Double-checked the rear and side guides, the tension, squareness of the blade to the fence, the table to the fence. Uh, increased <clears throat> and decreased the tension. S- super slow feed rate, faster feed rate. I kept having the same issue. Get it? I've resawn hardwood before, nearly this thick, and I haven't had a problem with the same blade. Thoughts? I wonder if it's with the same blade.
1: Yeah, and if he really, you know, and I'm not calling him out, but really, if he did 10 inches of maple on a, that saw, does it really not bow bow out? Um, pine's funky, you know, pine's resinous, and yeah. it's weird, it's soft, it is, it is interesting, you know, I love pine, but um, on bandsaw, it can be, you know, a little wavy, wavy. Mm-hmm. This is, you know, my experience is... Um, we use half-inch blades at the school all the time in our resaw general-purpose bands. And we can resaw 13 inches with them dialed in. A good blade set up, you can, you can totally resaw it. And I did a resaw article a number of years back, and that's what I suggested the blade we use at the school. And it's a pretty darn good resaw blade, half-inch. And there's like 3TPI, 4TPI, the wood slicer, you get any of those. But you can get those dialed in pretty well. But as time goes on, what I realize in my experience is my half-inch blades – they start to lose their. Can I say a swear? I shouldn't swear on the podcast. They, a bit. They, they lose their bonk, bonk. after a while. Like okay. they're just, you're going along. It's like cut number eight and a half, and it's just starts to be like, I can't handle this anymore. I got to just get, I'm just no more. And so I, you know, I, in my mental world, I'm thinking the blade's heating up. It's stretching a little bit. Like mm-hmm. that's what I'm Things going on. But it, the reality is, is it's going fine, then it's not going fine. So, um, as the years have gone on i realized getting to a bigger blade that's got some beam strength so if your saw can handle a three-quarter or one inch blade um they don't get bullied around and so for the so for i I know since 2012 now i've been running these one inch bimetal or carbide blades Uh for resawing uh lennox uh wood master C uh, the carbide one right now, 1.3 TPI in it never goes off it. Just like it just does what you want it to do time, time and time and time again. So, um, that, I know that's not really answering the question why that might've happened, but well, this,
0: this brings up the thought for me. So a 14 inch saw, you've got a 105 inch blade probably. Right. Um, you can only generally go up a half-inch, three-quarters of an inch, maybe. Um, even if your throat opens up to 12, 12 inches, inches it's, pro- it, it's likely it's not going to be able to r- consistently resaw 12 inches. There's a power issue, but then also with a 105-inch blade compared to a 160-inch blade and like a 20-inch right. bandsaw, there's less metal for the heat to dissipate right. through. Yeah. Those teeth are hitting more frequently. Yeah. In the saw and you know so what is your ideal size bandsaw for resawing? <clears throat> um Is it a bigger bigger yeah, is better yeah, thing? Yeah,
1: yeah, 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 definitely. And so, so what, you know what, I I have a have band I have a saws. 20 inch uh, Powermatic, which yeah. I love, uh, Power, uh, Powermatic 81. And it, to me, is like the, the smallest big bandsaw. Like, um, that, uh, getting, um, having used a 24 and 30 and 36 inch saw in different places, when you resaw on something like that, you understand why, um, those saws were made because yeah. there's so much more mass. There's so much more blade length. There's so much more energy in the game. Um, so yes, you can resaw on a 14 inch bandsaw, but just the force, your, the forces are against you. And when you resaw on something that's, you know, my bandsaw is not a thousand thousands of pounds, but it's something that's a thousands of pounds. Like it just does what it, you want it to do. Yeah. Um, so, um, I'm distracted because I've had this mouse in the shop. Oh no! Just, there's a mouse. Does that see it on the power cord going oh, up the wall yeah. right there.
0: <laughs> Is that the one that you just brought outside? <laughs> no, in the I, I think, can, we think we
1: had a little like hatch of mice. Oh, in the shop. So <laughs> I've seen a couple
0: running around.
1: Yeah. So yeah. Jeff and I. All right. So all right. So just if I'm distracted, uh, that's fair. But so those are going
0: to be the Easter eggs in yeah, the well, in the video.
1: Those are right. Find yeah. the find the mice. Yeah. Yeah. One just. Went back this way, so um, so twenty inch bandsaw, Powermatic eighty one, of the old Rockwell deltas are great, great um, saws for um, they can handle a lot of stuff in a furniture shop.
0: Uh, so f- a f- a fourteen inch bandsaw, what do you think? You know, is it is it safe to say anything past six inches? You just might have to accept some loss from a wandering blade.
1: May I maybe you know I uh, you know I think. You get in trouble. You're gonna get some mail if I yeah. say that. Oh, we're, we're, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, like General in Drummondville, Canada made this. Um 15-inch bandsaw for a long time. Michael Fortune's got a bunch of it, but they make a tall version of it where it resaws 12 inches. And so I can't remember the model number of it, but um, it's usually got a six-inch resaw height. They made one at 12-inch resaw height, and they put a horse-and-a-half Baldor motor on it. And I know someone who has it. So it's tech, it's like it's a 15-inch saw, but it's all cast iron. And that thing can really resaw 12 inches. So I think if you've got... Oh, sorry about that. Yeah, a big right. enough motor, um, a big enough... Let me just...
0: All right. Tim's running to answer, to shut the phone off. Sorry about
1: that. The joys of working. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So so it isn't safe to say that there's a a problem with 14-inch bandsaws. Maybe not. You know, another
1: woodworker I know here, Jerry Curry, he's been on the back cover of the magazine. He's been on the front cover of Woodwork Magazine. He's got carved high boys in museums. He has a 14 inch Delta with a riser block mm-hmm. and he's lived his whole career. And he's, you know, he's got, he makes the wood smart uh, wood sample kits. He's resawn more wood than, so that's, I, yeah. I, I, I don't know. It's hard to say, but you know, if you had a 36 inch Wadkin or Oliver or Northfield bandsaw and you put your 10 by 10 pine block on it, it's a different world than if you're, Doing it on a fourteen-inch soft because yeah. the blade length, the blade, all that stuff. But my experience is half-inch blades eventually start to lose their okay. cool. They just do, you know. So,
0: so time
1: for a new blade for Dave. Yeah, and maybe if, yeah, it'd be interesting to have a fresh blade and make a cut in the pine and then make a cut in some hardwood and see if it is like the for some reason the pine. But I don't think it is.
0: I've I've found that anytime I I cut pine. On my saw, there's just a lot of. I need to, at the very least, clean gummed the blade. Up, yeah, yeah. You know, it's gummed up afterwards. So, um, yeah.
1: We didn't get anywhere on that, did we? N-
0: well, we 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 wandered. A, a we good wandered. Bit. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Here's a question from Andy. I've heard that you always need to put the same veneer on both sides of a board in order to prevent uneven movement down the road. However, some veneer is extremely expensive. So I was wondering if there was a kind of alternative veneer that could be used on the faces that will be hidden. Is there such a thing as secondary veneer?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, you just get backer veneer, we call it. And so you would just, the same thickness. So if it's commercial veneer, 40th of an inch, you would have rosewood on the top and, you know, some inexpensive mahogany or, pop, you know, whatever poplar on the bottom. But as long as it's the same thickness, the species is not, you're starting to worry too much if it's the same, but as long as it's the same thickness. So if you have a shop on veneer on the top, you have a shop on veneer underneath. Okay. It'll balance it.
0: Yeah. Which is what on the, the desk you just made. You yeah.
1: Have your A side and your B side. Yeah. You get your A side and your B side and hopefully you glue the A on the A and the B on the B. And yeah. so it, you're not upside down, but yeah, no, just so long as you balance it with something. Okay. Same thickness.
0: Um, you had a little secondary question. Uh, if the project is, if the project is extremely small, like a tea box or something, is it still important to veneer both sides with the same wood? Not, well, you just answered with the same wood species, but uh, so a small lid for a tea box or something like that—would you veneer both sides?
1: I would, but maybe, I mean, just yeah. You, I mean, I think you would. You know, the s- seasonal comings and goings of the moisture will flip flip it. Um, so I, I would, and it, it, I mean. Like if you've veneered, say you have a tea box, and you're just putting a fancy veneer onto wood, right? Mm-hmm. And you're not putting veneer cross grain. So you're not actually, you know, it's not plywood with veneer on it. So you've got a piece of kind of average mahogany, you're putting some crotch mahogany on the top. Mm-hmm. An argument can be made that you might be able to just do that, leave that alone. You have a glue line in there that slows the moisture deal on one side, but it's still wood expanding, contracting, um harmoniously where if you put it cross grain on the top so then you have a fight so when there's the, the the core wood starts to expand the top veneer is holding it and so then it would start to cup up or uh cup across its grain during it expanding. and that's where the backing veneer would really help to keep it flat but if you had it going with the grain there'd be less risk to it if that makes any sense yeah um, like if you're gluing a veneer on a drawer face, like okay. here, here's a place where you make an exception. It's like you got a s- bunch of drawers, you only got one board, so you resaw your fancy wood at say, you know, an eighth or say it's, just say it a 16th, right? And so then you're gluing a face veneer on a drawer face. Do you need to put a backer on the inside? And I don't think no. I think you don't have to because you got the drawer sides that are dovetailed like battens holding mm-hmm. it flat. And two, you're... The grain is going in the same direction. You're living harmoniously. Um, so often, we, you can forego the backing veneer on a drawer face. Okay, and you can even, if you want to, is you can make you know slice your drawer face veneer at three sixteenths of an inch, make through dovetails, and then just glue on three sixteenths, so it looks like the tightest you know half blind yeah. joints in the world when you glue that on. So
0: and then don't tell anyone. And don't tell anybody. Yeah,
1: yeah, that's yeah. a good.
0: I i I feel like. Uh... Almost more so to layman that veneering is thought of as a bad thing.
1: shoddy, yeah yeah
0: and this desk you're, the top of it is veneered, and it 's for a very, very good reason, yeah um, a lot of times veneered furniture can be constructed lighter and stronger, right
1: yeah, because you can use well, yeah, plywood has weight to it, so um, you know that there is. But it does allow, you know, you don't have to deal with the seasonal wood movement. You know, Tom Hucker's teacher, Leonard, the German guy, you know, taught, taught Tom this. He said, the apprentice works the solid and the master works the veneer. And if you go to museums, you'll see the bulk of what's in there is veneered work because the no longer wood movement is an issue and you're allowed to paint. You know, you can do what you want. And back then they were sawing wood thicker, you know, so there was some more tenacity to it. What happened is his industry came in and tried to slice this stuff as thin, 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 thin as possible In our world, and even in the commercial world, like growing up, going to Walmart and Kmart and Zares or wherever it would go, like the stuff was so crappy and thin on the the worst substrate in the world. Like that's kind of the feeling we get. Yeah. But if you take and resaw shop veneer or buy thick veneer from Certainly Wood, 16th-inch veneer, and you glue that to Goodwood, that is an awesome surface. I mean, there's a lot of wood there. You can hand plane that. You can run it through your drum sander. You can run it through a thickness planer um, when it's that thick. You know. Yeah. And so um, it's a it's a different world. But the real the really thin stuff, like if I just had commercial veneer for this tabletop, I would worry about it. Like it's you know a fortieth of an inch away from being worn through. Yeah. So. Um, so if hypothetical for the rest of your life you can only use
0: 40th of an inch veneer yeah would you still veneer as much as you do
1: uh i don't i guess i don't veneer a lot okay um i i i don't i don't really like the the 40th of an inch veneer i like the colors that it brings and all the range of woods that you can get yeah but what would my option i couldn't or just working in solid wood. yeah i just do solid yeah yeah okay that's cool. what I do. And i slice it.
0: Yeah. All right. <clears throat> Let's see. Um, I'm going to skip the last finishing question.
1: Thanks, C. Thank you.
0: Because there was two in a row.
1: I know. I'm, I'm not right. the best guy f- for finishing questions.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, then this is a good one. From Kevin, looking at my finishing cabinet, I see I have seven or eight cans of half-use finished. I've since decided to really try and limit myself to two or three go-to finishes. In an attempt to keep it simple, if you had to limit yourself to to a couple of finishes, what would they be?
1: They would be. Uh, I I really like uh, water based um, sp- finish that I spray on these days, and the Target Coatings Company uh, makes some really good water based. Finishes, And they have like a spray lacquer, a spray poly, a spray conversion varnish, but they're also, they're, they're basically a spray finish. And I really like that on light colored woods. Um, the other finished and I'm just, I'm, there's a lot of finishes that I could talk about, but so um, in that world, like the general finish, I can't, what's the can't say?
0: Uh, it's high performance. Yeah
1: is high-performance water bases are really good in that world. And I like to spray that out of a critter sprayer, like low-tech, the low-tech, the ghetto sprayer um, on Amazon. But if you look at the reviews, thousands of people love it, have tattoos of it on their face, so it can't be bad, people. Um, so the critter sprayer with water-based spray is awesome. Trust me. The other thing is I really like having an oil varnish mix that I like. And for a long, long time, it was Watco, Danish oil, which you buy at every place. And um, it wouldn't build quickly. Did you see the mouse? Um, And so – but but I – it doesn't build, you know, and so – Sutherland and Wells out of Vermont, that uh, Murdoch's hard sealer or their um, just their regular um, tongue oil product. I really like those. They dry quickly. They look great. The tongue oil has a really good look to it. So you like to
0: keep it really simple, finishing wise.
1: Yeah. That being said, sometimes I use shellac, sometimes I use Osmo, sometimes I use um, other stuff. But do you ever send your. Pieces out to be finished. Rare, rarely, rarely. But I should do more of that. We had uh, in New York. We had a really great finisher, and I would do send them out more here. It's harder to find a good finisher, and so.
0: And then you take the piece over. You gotta, yeah, you yeah. got
1: to get it there and get it back, and so. Yeah, I've been doing it, but it's smart. It's smart if you have a good finisher, pay them to do it. Cool. Yeah.
0: All right. Well, uh, I think that'll do it for this episode because we've got a video to finish yeah we do uh, alright so that's all for this episode of Shop Talk Live if you have questions you'd like us to answer on the show send them into to shoptalk at taunton.com you can use the voice memo app on your phone and send us a 30 second audio recording or you can leave a voicemail by calling 203-304-3456 if you're watching on YouTube click that thumbs up button we'll be back with another episode thank you Tim yeah thanks Ben and thanks for everyone thanks, for listening
1: thanks Jeff Oh, no, no, no.